excited that you're here with me tonight because it means you also didn't get to go away for the long weekend, all right, like me. Um, no, uh, seriously, I'm excited because we get to continue our series called A New Way to Live, um, and it's really been a fantastic series. So if you're new with us, this is where we're at. We are, we are not even in the middle yet, but we are some ways into... Um, basically a series where we're unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. We're unpacking the greatest sermon ever preached, and this message or this sermon was preached by Jesus some 2,000 years ago on a beautiful slope leading up from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. I can imagine Jesus sitting in the grass surrounded by some flowers and having his disciples at his feet, and he's busy delivering this message, which is the greatest message ever delivered. And here's why it's such a great series or such a great sermon or referred to as the greatest sermon ever preached. Because essentially what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's unpacking the true nature of righteousness. He's taking people's paradigms and the way they think about what God actually wants and he's turning it upside down because so often we get it wrong. And what had happened for such a long time is people had thought that God wanted us to act righteously, but the inner motives, the inner thoughts and attitudes of our hearts were never really considered. And the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus going and clarifying for us what true righteousness really is, and that it's not only about being obedient to God in our outward actions, but with our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives as well. So that's what Jesus is busy doing, and we've unpacked quite a bit so far, but some of the stuff we've looked at is murder. You know, we've, we've heard Jesus say stuff like, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And that is what was taught, but what happened was people thought that it was just the act of murder that was ungodly, but not the heart motive. And Jesus says, but I tell you, it's got to do with what happens on the inside. Jesus said, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery. Jesus says, you've heard it said that it was permitted that you can divorce your spouse. But I'm telling you that that's not something you can do. I think Howard did an amazing job of that. If you haven't heard that one, go and listen to that message. Brad last week spoke about oaths and letting your yes be your yes and your no be your no. God says don't, don't swear by someone's head or like we would ask. Oh, swear on my mother's life. Don't, like don't do that sort of stuff. Don't swear by the moon and the stars and all that's available to you because you don't own that. It doesn't belong to you. Just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Tonight's message we're going to have a look at what Jesus teaches with regards to vengeance and how he unpacks this heart attitude that we have uh, for vengeance and how he says we need to approach this thing that we sometimes experience in our lives where we desire to get one back on somebody. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going, to, we're going to read together. And just to say, we're going to unpack this message under two headings tonight. So not the good Baptist traditional three. We're going to go for two, all right? Um, the first one is we're going, to, we're going to unpack the law of Moses and the traditional misunderstanding. And I'll explain that to you now. And then we're going to unpack the Christian response, or what is the Christian response to evil and personal insult. So let's pray together, and we'll get, we'll get started. Father, I want, to, I want to thank you for your word. God, I want to bless you that your word is truth. I want to thank you that it is reliable, that it is, um, God, something that when it is spoken over us and we receive it, it changes our lives. Lord, I want to pray that your word would go out with power tonight, that people's lives would be changed, that we would be convicted, Lord, that we would be purged of any ungodliness and unrighteousness in our lives, and that our attitudes would be godly to you, and that it would manifest in godly action and love for people around us, and the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So our passage of Scripture tonight, if you have your Bibles or your apps open, you can turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 38 to 41. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That's it. That's the passage we're going to unpack, and I'm so used to reading a whole lot more than that. So we're going to dive in straight to heading number one, the law of Moses and the traditional misunderstanding. Jesus begins our text tonight by quoting an Old Testament passage, and that passage is found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, and this is what it says. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. It sounds very foreboding. Jesus says this, you have heard it taught, and it was taught. This was a law God had given to his people, and it was taught. Jesus says, you've heard it taught, but he says, you've heard it taught because there's a problem with the way it was taught, not what was commanded. Jesus is addressing this, and he starts this way because the way God's people, particularly the Pharisees and religious leaders, had begun to teach this law was twisted and mangled. They had taken it completely out of its context and robbed it of its original meaning and intent. And so what started to happen was people started to misunderstand this law, this scriptural, this command, and it had begun to cause harm amongst God's people and not good. And this is often one of those scriptures that non-believers use to point to the fact that our God isn't good because what type of God would command something like this? But there's a total misunderstanding of this verse. So here's how they twisted it. Here's how, here's how they misunderstood this verse. Well, number one, they took it completely out of its context, completely out of the sphere in which it applied. Right, that's the first way in which they did that. The second way in which they did that was they took it and made it an obligation rather than a maximum limit. And I'm going to explain these just now. So firstly, what they did was they took it out of its sphere, out of its context. When we, when we come to understand Scripture, it's important that we understand context. Without context, we can go anywhere, wherever we want with Scripture and make it sound like it's teaching whatever it is that we wanted to teach. Context is very valuable. When God spoke this law in the Old Testament, He absolutely meant it. It's not like God spoke this law and was like, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and it was like, whoa, no, hold on, that's a, that's a really bad idea. Right? When God spoke this, He absolutely meant it. He had no second thoughts about this law. It was a good law. But when you go and you read, if you want to go and read it, you can read it in Exodus chapter 21. When you read when this law was given to people, it was given in a specific context for a specific context. It was given to the judges of Israel. It was given to those people who had authority over the people of Israel. It was given to people in civil authority, and it was a way of teaching them or guiding them in how to administer civil responsibility and judgment within a civil context. In other words, the government and how the people in government, the MPs, were supposed to manage the people. It's not a law that you will find in a section that teaches us how to relate to another person. 
It's not a law that you'll find in a section that teaches us how to honor or to love your neighbor and how we deal with interpersonal challenges and interpersonal relationship issues. That's not where you find this law. But what they did was take it out of its context and change the sphere in which it applied, and they put it into the realm of interpersonal relationships. And they did this to justify the pursuit of personal revenge. That's what they did. In other words, they took this to mean that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means that I can become prosecutor, judge, and executioner. If you break my cell phone, I'm going to take a hammer, I'm going to smash yours right back. If you bump into my car, you must know I'm going to put it into reverse and I'm going to ram yours right back. That's what it meant. The list of scenarios is endless. But you get the idea. They had taken this really good verse, this really good command that God had intended for the judges of the day, and they'd made it a personal relationship law. This is how we treat one another. But here's the problem with that. We all have a sinful nature. And the second thing that they did was make this thing an obligation rather than a limit. And here's why. Our sinful nature and limits are really, really good. Or limits on our sinful nature are really good. I don't know if you guys, if you guys have had a bachelor party before. The guys, the guys got married, right? The, we, we had this thing where we had to up, we had to one up one another, right? And it became terrifying because as a Christian, you couldn't do all the sinful stuff, so you had to come up with some really clever ideas, right, to get people back. And when it was your friend's turn for his bachelor's, it was never just, oh, we're going to do the same to him. It was, we're going to do that and we're going to do 10 times more. And you were just grateful that you were not the last person to get married, all right? Eventually, at one stage, I mean, like we had to repent because we did some really hectic stuff. The last guy that got married, we tied him up for an hour and a half and put him in the back of a bucky and made him listen to a remixed version of Barbie Girl, right? <laughs> after giving him two liters of water to drink while we sat outside the garage and had a braai. We had to repent of that. It, it was necessary after that for the elders of our church to put limits on what we did to people, which is exactly why God gives this command. Not only did he give it in a specific context, but because of that sinful nature and that inherent desire in us to get people back and a little bit more extra, that's what he gives us. That's what we do. When we say we're going to give, when we say we're going to get somebody back, what we really mean is we, we're going to do to them what they did to us and a little bit extra, maybe a, little, a lot more extra, just to make sure that the punishment's really paid for. You poke my eye, and I'm going to poke your eye and punch you in the nose, is what we really mean by I'm going to get you back. But here's what God says. God says that retribution and justice has got limits. There is a place for punishment or, or, or getting someone back to, to stop because it's, it's, it, it, it is equal. And God knows our nature. He knows our sinfulness. He knows our inherent desire to go way over and far beyond what is necessary. And so that's why he gives this thing. He says, in other words, if someone takes 50 rand from you, then 50 rand must be given back. If someone takes an eye from you, and it can be proved that they were deliberately trying to take your eye from you, then an eye must be taken back. Not 10 fingers and an eye for an eye, or 50,000 rand for 50 rand. It must be capped. 
But instead of seeing this as a maximum limit to justice, what God's people had done is they'd seen it as an obligation rather than as a maximum limit. There was no room for leniency or for forgiveness. So Brad and I could have been walking out in, you know, the farmyard back in the day, and I could have not been paying attention and swung around and by accident knocked his tooth out, and it was a valuable tooth because it was a gold one or something like that. And there's no consideration for how it happened. It's just, I did it, now I'm obligated to take a tooth back from you. And we don't go to the court and sort this thing out and have a judge maybe say to us, no, Brad, this was by accident, you know, Roland didn't mean this. It was, no, I lost a tooth, now you're going to lose a tooth. No consideration for the fact that the tooth might have been fraught. Who knows, it was going to, maybe it was going to fall out. There was no consideration for that. It was just, I am obligated to take a tooth from you because you took a tooth from me. We don't need anybody to preside over this hearing because God's word says, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. The problem with this is it caused God's people to be consumed with a desire for revenge. There was this bloodlust that developed, and everyone was just very careful not to do what they weren't supposed to do. Or if somebody crossed you, you plotted and you planned because God's word was on your side. You're going to get them back eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And it just perpetuated this vicious, wicked cycle of ungodliness where my heart just poured forth hatred for you if you did something to me that I didn't enjoy because I was going to sit down, I was going to plot and plan how to get you back. And whether you actually act out to your acts of vengeance, the fact that you've thought about getting back at somebody, the fact that you may have sat down and pondered what it would be like to do what you want to do to that person who did whatever it is that they did to you, means that you are someone who sinned before God. In the same way that hating somebody is murder, just plotting and planning and thinking about getting back, God says is a heart issue. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that true righteousness goes way beyond this tit-for-tat attitude or this tit-for-tat mindset. He says there's, there's no place for personal revenge and there's no place for you to desire to get back at somebody if they've insulted you or offended you. There's no place for that in the lives of people who call themselves children of God. Which leads us to Heading number two, what is then the Christian response to insults and evil, or personal insults and evil? In response to this misunderstanding of the law, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, Jesus um, gives three really awesome examples of what it means to respond in a godly way in a situation where you would want to get back, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in a situation where you might be tempted to get the person back, but go just a little bit further. Here's what Jesus says. He says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I tell you, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. I just want to clarify something quickly before we move on. Often people read this passage, especially verse 39, and they'll think that Jesus is calling his people to be pacifists, to pacifism, where we don't take a stand for anything, where we can just become doormats. People have often used this, this passage or this verse particularly um, to, to, to say that God is condemning self-defense. and We should just let evil happen. 
It is wrong. I just want to state this emphatically. It is wrong to assume that when we read this passage that Jesus is saying we must not resist evil in general. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus in his own life demonstrated for us over and over again that we're meant to resist evil. When he turned over the tables in the temple courts, he was resisting evil. Jesus, when he spoke to the Pharisees in the way that they would treat people, he was resisting evil. Numerous times, Jesus shows us that it is our mandate as Christians to resist evil. When there are things like child trafficking, human trafficking, when there's stuff like sexual abuse, when there's stuff like drug abuse, when there's stuff like murder, when there's that sort of stuff going on in the world, when there is injustice in the world, it is the mandate of Christians to stand up and to resist evil. This is speaking about how you personally respond to a personal attack on your character and on your property and how you're meant to respond to another human being. This isn't speaking about the laws that are put in place and, are, and, and the responsibility given to people in civil government. We're meant to be resisting evil. You're not meant to be a doormat. You're not meant to take the burglar bars off of your house. You're not meant to leave your door unlocked. You're not meant to, when someone breaks into your home, just watch them ravage your house and tie up your family and abuse them. You're not meant to do that. You're not meant to protect yourself, not meant to not protect yourself if someone comes at you with a baseball bat or a gun. You're not meant to not run as fast as you can when that happens. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says we need to resist evil but there's a specific reason, and this applies specifically to a specific context, right? And this is how we resist evil. God's Word is clear. Number one, we have to hate it. God's Word says in Romans 12 verse 9, hate evil. We have to hate it. Expose evil, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, 11. Expose it. We've got to hate it. You've got to expose it. And then he says, overcome evil with love in Romans 12, 21. We're meant to resist it, and that's how we meant to resist it. So the question is this. If Jesus isn't calling us to pacifism in verse 39, what does he actually mean? To answer that, we have to understand the context again of the passage we're reading. The people of Israel had taken a civil law and made it a personal relationship law. They'd taken it upon themselves, like I said earlier, to become the prosecutor, the judge, and the executioner in all circumstances and situations. So when Jesus says, don't resist an evil person, he sees that comment or that command in contrast to how they had misinterpreted the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth passage. And what he's saying is, don't seek revenge on someone who has wronged you. Don't personally plot and plan or take revenge into your own hands. Don't repay evil for evil. That's what Jesus is saying here. If someone has wronged you, this evil person, if they've wronged you, don't try and fight evil with evil. That's what Jesus is saying when he says don't resist an evil person. Don't resist them with evil. Don't pay evil back with evil. That's what Jesus is saying. He's calling his followers to surrender our personal desires for vengeance. And the reason why he does that is because when we desire vengeance on someone, we're motivated by hate. But when God enacts vengeance on somebody, he's motivated by his righteousness and his godliness and his goodness and his justiceness, if that's even a word. 
But when we do it, it's because we want to get them back. And it's motivated by hate. And we can so spin it to sound good. But we all know that when we want to get something back or someone back, it's not really our righteousness that we're operating out of. Jesus calls his followers to break this cycle of tit for tat, this cycle of hatred. He calls us to remember that he says in his word that vengeance belongs to him. Therefore, he calls us to go to the opposite extreme. And here's what he calls us to do. It's such a Jesus thing to do, to go to the other side and to instead of seek vengeance, seek to love Seek to forgive, because that is the highest kingdom ethic. It's the ethic of love in the kingdom of God. It's God's love. He goes on to give three radical examples, which make his point repeatedly about the attitude that we're supposed to have in personal circumstances and situations where we are being insulted or wronged, not physically abused or having our lives threatened. It's about being insulted and having our rights compromised and our pride broken, and maybe some material possessions destroyed or taken away. They are three practical examples of what it means to overcome evil with love. Jesus gives his example. He says, this is how you love somebody. This is how you overcome evil with love, like it says in James. They're three practical examples of what he means in verse 39. So when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he gives you three examples of what he means. This is how you don't resist an evil person. So let's look at example number one together. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What a lot of people don't know is that in these days, in the ancient days, a slap on the right cheek was one of the most, probably the most grievous insult you could have ever given to somebody. To be slapped on the right cheek meant that you would have got a firm backhand from somebody with their right hand across your right cheek. It would have been like when those, you know in the old movies when a distinguished Englishman takes off his white glove and slaps you across the face. Right? It, was that it, was a, it wasn't, and that's why God's word rightly says it, it's a slap. It wasn't a, a punch intended to inflict physical harm. It was a slap across the face, a backhand across the face with the right hand that would hit you in the right cheek. And it was a deep, grievous insult. It was meant to cause insult. It was meant to degrade you. It was meant to humiliate you and embarrass you and to shame you wasn't meant to cause physical harm. So when Jesus is saying this, he's not saying don't defend yourself from somebody coming at you with a baseball bat. He's saying when someone wants to insult you, this is what you need to do. But it was this huge insult. It was something that you did to somebody who was a subordinate, who you would consider a subordinate or lesser than you. It was such an insult that Jewish and Roman law legalized the prosecution of this action. So you could prosecute somebody and take them to court, find them and possibly even have them imprisoned for slapping you across the cheek with a backhand. That's how grievous an insult it was. It, it would be the equivalent of rocking up at a Heritage Day bride tomorrow in the Eastern Cape at the birthplace of Nelson Mandela draped in the old South African flag. Right? It, it would be the equivalent of calling people by the names that they were called in the old apartheid days, people that weren't white. 
That's how grievous this insult was. It was hectic. It would be like wearing a shark's jersey to Newlands. In other words, it was so grievous that you could have gone to prison for it. And we need to keep that in mind. That's why Jesus brings us up. It's got nothing to do with self-defense and protecting yourself from somebody who wants to do harm to you. This has got to do with you receiving massive personal public insult. Jesus says, when you had the right to take the person to court and to possibly have them imprisoned for this, here's what you should do instead. Turn the other cheek. This is heavy for us because everything in us wants to go, I want to get you back. I'm going to take you to court, buddy, and you're going to, you're going to go to jail and hell for this. I'm going to make sure of that. But here's why Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Here's what happens. Here's the kingdom paradigm that comes in. Here's, Jesus just does this thing again. He teaches us how to deal with this thing in such a way that brings him glory and disarms us and our enemy. When you turn the other cheek, when you turn the other cheek in this situation, you declared to the offender that they have no power over you to insult you. Why? Because you knew or you know to whom you belong. I just want to say this to us, church. Your value and your identity are not determined. Your worth is not determined by what men have to say about you, by the actions of men. They are determined by our Savior and His words over you. That's what happens when you turn the other cheek. You don't give in to this power play or this, or this insult that was meant to degrade you. By turning the other cheek, you make a statement. What you have to do does not determine how I feel about myself. And so I'm not going to take retribution on you the way that I'm legally in this situation allowed to. I'm just going to turn the other cheek, and that's going to totally disarm you, and it's going to humble me before the Lord. The second thing that happens is you break the cycle of eye-to-eye eye and tooth-for-tooth tooth misunderstanding. Instead of responding in hatred and anger and giving the person what they deserved, you show love beyond the bounds of human comprehension. Anybody in that situation would have gone, oh, you, you're going to jail, buddy. Anybody would have done that. But when a Christian stands up and does something that's totally counterintuitive to our sinful nature, it shocks us into thinking what is going on here. And people inevitably ask this question, why? And that lays the platform for you to preach the gospel, which is what it's all about, bringing glory to Jesus. It displays the love and the kindness of God. It displays power and not weakness. <coughs> I just want to make, I just want to say something else, a bit of a sideline. I've got sideline notes here. Should I have, should I be led by the spirits to make this point? I will make it, and I'm going to make it. This, this, this doesn't mean that there aren't times where you allow physical harm to you for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean there aren't times where you can be led by the Spirit to endure physical abuse for the sake of the gospel. And there are a number of stories like that. Jesus was one in particular, the ultimate example of where he allowed physical abuse for the sake of the kingdom. And he asked for it to be taken away, and God said no, and so he was obedient. There are times where I, there's these movies, these DVDs about revival around the world that I was watching when I was first saved. 
And the one story stuck out to me, and I've remembered it all my life. It's a story about a pastor in a gang-ridden society in South America. And um, he served his whole life trying to convert this community. And he had one, one or two people for the Lord. But gangsterism just seemed to be growing and getting stronger. And evil just seemed to be digging its heels in. And he had a dream the one night. He had a family, a wife, and some, some young children. And he had a dream the one night that he was going to lose his life for the sake of the kingdom. And he woke up the one morning, and God said to him, Today's the day you're going to die. And he spoke to his family, he spoke to his wife, and she was begging him not to go out. And he was like, I need to go preach the gospel, but God's warned me, if something happens today, just know that this is his will. And he walked out into the street, and one of the leaders of one of the gangs was unhappy with what he was doing, jumped him, um, sort of took him captive, and killed him. And as a result of that, obviously his family had to process a whole bunch of stuff, um, but his wife went back out into the streets to preach the gospel. And because she went out to preach the gospel and because she took her children with, because she displayed the love and the kindness of God and because she forgave, the whole community got saved. Gangsterism gone. People converted. People's lives redeemed. The whole bunch of revival broke out because of the action of one man and the forgiveness of his wife and his family. I just want to say there are times when that's going to happen, but that's not the norm. That's the exception. That's a spirit-led thing. But otherwise, if someone's coming at you with a baseball bat, run. Example number two, Jesus goes on to say, says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In this example, someone is set out to sue you. We don't know if we're in court. We don't know, you know, what's happening, but they, they just want to sue you, and it's probably um, for unjust means, right, because it's an evil person. But, but Jesus says, don't just, don't just give them your shirt. Give them your coat as well. Now, the reason why that was significant was because people liked to dress in layers back in the day. You had your undergarments, you had your, your shirt that went over that, and then you had a robe right, to keep you warm. You had an outer cloak. And if someone who didn't have any material possessions worth suing them for was being sued, if the person suing them won, you were expected to give them your shirt. And why did you just give them your shirt? Well, no one wants your underpants. And it's, 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 it's not really decent to take the person's coat because it was probably the only coat they had, the only shirt they had, and the only underwear they had, and the coat kept you warm. So you gave them the middle layer. You gave them your shirt. In this situation, someone's trying to rob you of one of the most important things that you have, and probably for unjust reasons. They're trying to overpower you, lord it over you, dominate you, and remove something of incredible value and worth to you. Jesus says if someone's trying to do that, you give to them not only your shirt but your cloak as well. And we go, yes, that's also a heavy teaching to understand. Jesus, are you being serious? And the answer is yes. And then we've got to ask the question, why? And here's why. When you give to the person before they've even won the battle in court, your shirt and your coat, you completely dispel the notion that they have any power over you. You expose their far and overreaching evil motives because if they take your shirt and your coat, they're taking something that they should never be taking, and if they do do it, it exposes the wickedness of their heart not yours. They had a right to take your coat or, or, or your shirt if they won. They didn't have a right to take your coat, but when you give them what they would have got if they had won and something more, most of the time, people will step back and go, no, 
And actually, let me even reconsider what I'm doing here. Because you're expected to fight, right? You're expected to fight for your rights and to undo this personal injustice that's been done and to prove that you are not in the wrong. The second thing, or the third thing that it does is it openly declares to people and to you your lack of dependence on material possessions and your dependence on God for His provision. It demonstrates, the fourth thing it does is it demonstrates the love and the compassion of God that He demonstrated to us by giving something of great value to us that we couldn't have afforded or earned or even deserved. That was His love and His salvation. Jesus on the cross. When we do that, we demonstrate to people the love of God and possibly even open up the door for reconciliation with this person. That's what Jesus says. The final example, example number three, Jesus says, if, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What you may not know is that it isn't just some random example Jesus came up with. Back in the day, um, Rome was the... Was, was, was the dominant city or people group, you know, it, the, like the glory of the Roman Empire. They were majestically, wonderfully powerful with the Roman Empire and their armies and all that sort of stuff. And basically, they were the um, inhabiting army or the, what's, what's that? the occupying, sorry, they were the occupying army. And um, it was legal for a Roman soldier to enlist the help of even an unwilling Jewish person to carry whatever it is that they wanted them to carry, and normally it was their military baggage. So if I was in the Roman army, I could be walking along having a really bad day, really feeling tired, and I'm like, hey, you, come here, carry this. And it was law. You had to carry that pack for one mile. You had to do it. Jesus says when that happens, you don't just carry it for one mile, you carry it for two because what would normally have happened is, you, can you imagine how you feel when this happens? You're having a great, maybe you're having a great brown heritage day, right? And you're hanging out with your family and you're hanging out with your friends and you've been looking forward to this steak for such a long time. This shisanyama, right? You're waiting for this and it is going to be awesome and your steak's on the braai and a, a bunch of army soldiers come past you and they're like, hey, come carry my pack for a mile, please. And you grit your teeth and you walk through the gate and you pick up the pack and you make this person know that you're unhappy. Not so much that you get chucked into jail, but enough that it's awkward between you. And you put the pack on your back and you count every single step out loud because you know exactly how many steps it took to walk a mile. And when you got to the end, you stopped and you took the pack off, not fast enough to be rude, but fast enough to have him know that you didn't like having to carry this. And then you sort of chuck it, half throw it down on the ground and you look at him and there's hatred in your eye, and you think to yourself, one day, one day I'm going to get you back. Jesus says in that moment you have an opportunity of walking away, or right from the outset, embracing this as an opportunity to preach the kingdom, and you walk the second mile. Why is that so significant? Well, it's similar to the other two examples. When you pick that pack up and you walk not only the one mile, but the second mile, you reclaim your freedom and your independence. And you put a stamp on the authority that you have that God has given you as an individual in the kingdom. And you declare that I am not owned by you. I have chosen to walk this second mile when I didn't have to. I am not your slave. The only power you have is power given to you by God. 
And I respected that, but I'm going to go even more to show you that my heart is not hard towards you. There's no animosity here. You break down the dividing walls of hostility, and you probably are going to open up an opportunity to have conversation. Can you imagine the conversation you'll have for that second mile with that Roman soldier, maybe with many of them around you, when they don't understand why, when your stake is on the fire and your family are waiting for you, that you're walking a second mile? You open the conversation with that person to the love of God. And even if they don't want to talk, even if it hardens their hearts, it's freed you up from hatred and animosity and a desire for vengeance. So in closing, I want to say this tonight. I want to draw your attention to this. These three examples... We see in them that the righteous person acts out of freedom towards the other person rather than reacting out of hatred because of what occurs. And as I prayed about this, I considered this, it seems to me that this ability to act freely and to love comes as a result of your personal relationship with Jesus and your understanding of your identity in Christ and an infilling of the overflow or the infilling of the Spirit which overflows out of you. It comes from an understanding that our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. It's as a result of our hearts and, and our inner world being transformed by Jesus. And it comes from an accurate understanding of what it means to be truly righteous within the kingdom. Jesus calls us to a new way of living so that we become living testimonies of His grace and His goodness, His mercy and His kindness. It's a big one in our culture to be offended for nothing. I'm offended. Well, I'm offended that you're offended. It's like the greatest taboo. And here's what Jesus says. I want you to let go of your desires and to let go of your right to be offended because that's hindering you from preaching the gospel. And to consider in all situations where you might be offended, consider the offense of the cross all the time. When you keep in perspective the offense of the cross, there's nothing anybody can do that will offend you enough to have you retaliate and seek vengeance on them. All the time, See people and circumstances through the eyes of Jesus in light of the cross, and you'll understand what it means to be a person who lives our kingdom lives. No one has been won for the kingdom by me asserting my rights. I'm, I'm just speaking personally here. I've never been in a forum or situation where I've asserted my rights, whether they were right or not to assert. And never have I been in a situation where, like, where that has happened and I've won a person for the kingdom. Or God's used me to win someone for the kingdom. Most often I've caused offense there. No one has ever been won for the kingdom by my retaliation. Ever. I was not won through revenge. I was not won through God's retaliation. Here's how I was won. I was won through self-sacrificial love and mercy and grace. I was won by a God who is referred to as a lion, becoming a lamb, giving up his rights. The only one who ever had any rights to retaliate and to seek vengeance because of his justice. I was won by him 
sacrificing everything for me. And here's what God says to us. I'm calling you to do exactly the same. Vengeance and the heart of vengeance is not the heart of God. Let people in civil offices of responsibility do their job. Let them set the laws and let them administer justice as God has led them to do it. And let God, let God have his vengeance one day. But for you, for you guys, it's for us, for me, it's to walk with Jesus and to be salt and light and to love, to forgive, and to be merciful in all situations for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. <clears throat> Lord, for its power, for its authenticity, and for this challenge tonight. And God, I want to pray that where we've desired revenge, where we've, um, vengeance, where we've desired revenge, God, that you would forgive us, that you would help us to deal with those circumstances and those situations. God, that there would be no animosity between us and another brother or sister or anyone else for that matter. May we be peacemakers. May we be those who are meek and gentle in spirit. Or may we be the poor in spirit, as you say in the Beatitudes. Lord, I, I pray that we'd be overflowing with the Spirit of God. And that as a people, Lord, we would be so tasteful to you, so pleasing to you, in the way that we respond when people insult us or we face evil. God, help us to be wise. Maybe tonight as we go into a time of worship, you need to bring what you've been carrying to the Lord and you need to lay that at his feet and ask for forgiveness for where you've sought revenge and desired vengeance where you've harbored hatred or animosity towards somebody, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness and just bring that before God so you can worship freely and be set free. God, I pray that that would happen tonight, that as your people we'd be transformed for the glory of your name. Amen.